All right. Do we want to take a quick bathroom break? Yes, we do. Okay. Uh, no. Bill, you always want to take a bathroom break. No, I'm fine. I'm fine. Please. Please. I'm good. Take one. No. Come on. No, I'm not going to the bathroom with you. I'm Captain Benjamin Sisko. Welcome to Deep Space Nine. Red alert. All crew members report to battle stations. Red alert. Shields up. What shields? You're Starfleet officers. Now start acting like it. Oh, it's just Garrick. Plain, simple Garrick. Dax, we might have just discovered the first stable wormhole known to exist. The wormhole does bring them our way, doesn't it? Everyone wants a piece of the new frontier. This will shortly become a leading center of commerce and of scientific exploration. And for Starfleet, one of our most important posts. Quite a motley crew you've assembled here, Benji. Listen to The Prophets, a Deep Space Nine podcast. And here are your hosts, Andrew Leyland, Paul Spataro, and Dr. Bill Robinson. Bloody hell. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Listen to The Prophets, a Deep Space Nine podcast, a Two True Freaks presentation. This is real! I am I completely forgot who I am. <laughs> <laughs> You're the dreamer, Andy. You're the dreamer of the dream. <laughs> I I am the dreamer, Betty Russell, aka Andrew Leyland, and I am joined by Kevin Mulcahy, aka Paul Spataro, Bert Ryan, our special guest, David Pascarella, the newsboy, J. David Weeter, and Bill Robinson as the preacher. <laughs> Why am I the newsboy? I'm not. <laughs> All right, you can be Roy Ritterhouse if you want to be. I mean, well, you're you the young. Be... You are the young kid in this group. Uh, touche. Okay. No, and if you don't watch yourself, you're going to wind up on the hood of the squad car. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah. Today we're talking about far beyond the stars. Trapped in time. I think I'm losing my mind. Cisco faces his greatest enemy. Things are going to change. They have to. Racism. On the next Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Season 6, episode 13 of Deep Space Nine. It was We are now half more than halfway through season six. Yeah, we're now more than halfway through the penultimate season. This episode was written by Mark Scott Zekri, with a teleplay by Ari Stephen Burr and Hans Beamler, and directed by series star Avery Brooks. And we will get into the nitty-gritty, the nuts and bolts. The social commentary of it all in but a few minutes after we have discussed Star Trek news. Actually, we may be talking about Far Beyond the Stars far sooner than I'd thought. You would be correct, yeah. yeah I, got, I, I got no news. Yeah, I don't think there was anything, uh, uh, yeah. I guess I guess oh. the only thing, since since we are not an Orville podcast, but it is kind of a tangentially <laughs> Star Trek thing kind of thing. Well, I was uh, going to bring that up after the show, but because I, I, I finally made my way through season two of the Orville, and uh, I got to mm-hmm. say, like once I got into it, I really enjoyed it. Anybody it, else? It, it picked up a lot. I thought as it went on. No, I know what Andy might think. Oh, you still haven't yes. seen Dave? Have you seen any of the Orville? I finished season one. I'm about four episodes into season two, but I'm on hold because my youngest she wants to watch it together. Have you but seen I, I Bordis's? Like have you seen Bordis's mustache? I love Bordis's mustache. <laughs> I think that's one of the, the greatest things was Bordis's mustache. Bordis has become like my favorite character on the show. 
when when they, they it was first of all there was Bordas's mustache. Then there was also when they were on the holodeck thing, and Bordas and his mate were dancing. It's, oh. it's, they're just funny. <laughs> they the were but but the character's funny. But it's he's funny, and they give him some more ster- serious storylines every once in a while. It, so it, it it makes him just you know not feel like a total joke. He's like if they gave Worf a very dry, more active sense of humor. I think. Yeah, I. I well, I don't think Bordis has a sense of humor. I just think he. I just think he's funny. Mm. Yeah, I think the fact that he's funny comes from the fact that he doesn't have a sense of humor. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, all right. Well, since Dave, uh, the two Daves are not caught up, I guess we will just. The rest of us will patiently wait. Well, having now completed my viewing of season two of the Orville, I am going to once again endeavor to watch season two of Discovery, yeah, which has which has not been an easy go. I, I just, uh, quite frankly, I'm about halfway through it, and I have not really enjoyed it at all. Uh, I, I'm, I feel like I'm watching it more out of obligation than out of enjoyment. Well, do, well don't let this next sentence de- deter you. Good luck with that. <laughs> right, Andy? Yep. <clears throat> But let's talk about a well-written episode of Star Trek, should we? Yes, let's. Uh, far Beyond the Stars, as I've already mentioned, Arlac Gubbins has the regular guest appearances by Brock Peters, Jeffrey Coombs, Mark Alamo, J.G. Hertzler, Aaron Eisenberg, and Penny Johnson-Gerald, who's also in the Orville, for people who like connections. So mm-hmm. it's almost a full crew complement of supporting characters, apart from Rob, who they didn't find a part for, which I thought was quite surprising. Uh just to stop you for a second, for our non-English, English-speaking brethren, what's a gubbins? Um, you know, what's the best way of describing it? Uh, it's just something. Okay. Oh, that explains it. I don't want any of that. Would you say it would be stuff? Yeah. Or stuff. like, whatchamacallit, or... Yeah, that kind of thing. Okay. All right. Yeah, that's, that's, I am glad to introduce proper swearing and slang to you, rather than this nonsense that you get from Murray Poppins. Right, okay, right, governor. right. All right, Governor. And there you go, Bob. You're on. Ian Dyke is about as English as you can get. Please. <laughs> <laughs> Are you saying that with sarcasm? Oh, oh dear. I, to me, I grew up with that being my image of what it was like to be English. I don't oh, get it. Mary is, is Jake Van Dyke not British? No. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No. I'm just no. he's, 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 clearly, he's clearly very cockney. Totally. Anyway, distraught by the death of a close friend in the Dominion War, Captain Benjamin Sisko speaks with his father about leaving Starfleet. But as the two talk, Sisko is distracted by a vision of a man dressed in 20th century clothes. When Sisko's visions become more frequent and pervasive, Dr. Bashir examines him and finds similar brain activity to a prior episode of vision Sisko experienced in the episode Rapture. Suddenly, Sisko transitions entirely into his vision, becoming Benny Russell, an African-American science fiction writer in 1950s New York. York City. Russell writes for the science fiction magazine Incredible Tales, and most of the people he encounters bear the likeness of people from Cisco's life on the station. On his way to work, Russell buys the latest edition of Galaxy Magazine, the competitor from a local newsboy. He then runs into his co-worker Albert Macklin. Should I mention who these are being led by? I suppose I should, reason it? Anyway, the newsboy is Aaron Eisenberg, Albert Macklin is called Meany, and the two walk to work together. The short-tempered liberal writer Herbert Rossoff, Armin Shimmerman, argues with magazine editor Douglas Pabst, René Aubergeois, over donuts, while writers Kay Eaton 
aka KC Hunter, now a visitor, and Julius Eaton, Alexander Siddig, banter in the background. The magazine's illustrator, Roy Ritterhouse, J.G. Hertzler, then arrives with a stack of sketches for the next edition. Russell is particularly drawn to a sketch of a space station, much like Deep Space Nine, and decides to write a story for it. When Pabst announced the next edition will include photos of the staff, he suggests Kay sleep late that morning, as the public would not respond well to the revelation that she is a woman. Russell realises he will also not be included, which Pabst confirms. Russell objects, but Pabst stands firm, choosing to conform with the prevailing public opinion. Leaving the office that night, a gust of wind takes Russell's drawing, and it lands at the feet of two police officers, Bert Ryan and Kevin Mulcahy. The officers hassle and question Russell, but let him go with a warning. Russell then encounters a preacher, who seems to be speaking directly to him, imploring him to write those words in the name of the prophets. He goes home and begins to write. Sometime later, he finishes the story, entitled Deep Space Nine, about a black captain of a space station. He shows it to his girlfriend, Cassie, Penny Johnson Gerald, who instead wants to buy the diner where she works with him, doubting his ability to earn a good living as a writer. A local hustler, Jimmy, Sirik Lofton, laughs at his idea of coloured people on the moon. Baseball writer, Willie Hawkins, Michael Dawn, flirts with Cassie, but she rebuffs him. At the magazine, the entire staff loves his story, especially Pabst news secretary, Darlene Kursky, Terry Farrell. Pabst, however, refuses to print it, and Russell refuses to change his story. Instead of turning his efforts to something more acceptable, Russell decides to write six sequels to his story, angering Pabst until Macklin devises a compromise. Russell's story will be a dream. Russell insists the dreamer also be black, to which Pabst consents. While Russell and Cassie are out celebrating, they hear gunshots and rush out to find that Jimmy has been shot and killed by Ryan and Mulcahy, ostensibly because he was trying to break into a car. When Benny protests this injustice, they beat him savagely. Weeks later, on his first day back at the office, excited to see his story in print, Pabst arrives empty-handed and informs them that a whole month's run of the magazine has been pulped as the owner wouldn't publish a story featuring a black hero. Pabst tells Benny he's been forced to fire him as well. Benny breaks down. He's screams that although the world can deny him, they cannot destroy his ideas, and the future he envisions is real. He collapses to the floor, sobbing, and is taken away by an ambulance. As he falls unconscious, he looks through the window, and rather than the city, he sees stars streaking past. The preacher sits by him and tells him that he is both the dreamer and the dream. Cisco wakes up back on the station. He's deeply moved by his vision and wonders if somewhere Benny Russell is dreaming at Deep Space Nine. It's real! Oh, <laughs> It was. It was totally real. I know, on the one hand, God, social justice warriors ruin everything, don't they? On the other, God, this is good. It's it's just, you know, what was really, really cool was being able to see people like, uh, you know, I'm just Carl Meany without makeup on. What? Yeah. You know? Because normally, you know, he's all in his Star Trek outfit and you can't tell what he really <laughs> looks like. In comparison to, like, Michael Dorn, who's taken off all his Klingon... <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah, that one. <laughs> okay, but on, but on the flip side... <laughs> yeah, very funny. I see what you did there, Paul. But on, but on the flip side, I know the hairstyle they were going for with uh, with Jimmy, with Jake, with Cirque Lofton. Oh, that was te- he was terrible. The makeup <laughs> was terrible. <laughs> was, I, I, I'm sorry. If there's a standout... I, 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 I don't want to say bad part of the episode, but that was kind of... I'm like, whoa, did he that pull me out of the episode? Holy cow. I mean, I know that was a hairstyle, but jeez... So you're talking about all the the meaning and 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 I know that's what statement. I did. That, yeah, that's, that's how shallow away. I am. That's what but I, I know that he's not as young as the character he plays, but he did take me out a little bit because he looked like a little boy playing dress up. <laughs> Just a bit. Just a bit. But I mean, the episode is 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 wonderful. It really is phenomenal. I have 
an issue with this episode, uh, and it's a personal one because I think the episode is wonderful, but my personal issue is I have a tough time when shows become so meta that they start saying that the show is fake. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. And that's kind of what they're doing here. They're they're, they're saying you know that I, within the reality of the show, I don't want it to be considered that the show is a fantasy. And they actually were talking about doing a Saint Elsewhere thing on this, where this was going to be you know a fantasy world that didn't really exist in their continuity. You know when when they ended up the series, and they decided to go against that. And I'm glad they did because I don't like for them to invalidate everything you saw at the end of it to say, oh, that was all just a fantasy in someone else's mind. And I know the reality is that it is a fantasy in someone else's mind, but I want the show to take itself seriously for, you know, beyond that. Uh, so that's where, that's where they ran the risk of going over the line for me as far as how it impacted the series. All that aside, I just thought this was great. I loved, you know, my joke about Kalmini, but I did, I did love getting to see everybody out of makeup. Uh, you know, I mean, how many times do you really get to see Armin Shimman as a, as a human, as a, you know, and things like that? It's just, uh, it, it was fun on that level. And then, Obviously, there is the social justice message, which is, you know, n- not particularly hidden. I mean, they come right out and they say it. They're not, you know, they're not trying to be subtle about it. But it's not as dopey as let this be your last battlefield <laughs> where where they, you know, they, they came out and hit you over the head with it. But they pretended like they were being subtle. Uh, at least this one, you know, they're coming right out and saying, hey, this is about racism and that, you know, that era and how how wrong it was. I like to look at it from a slightly more positive view because I like to look at the racism that existed back, I guess this is supposed to be like the 1950s, and think of how far we've progressed since then and how that's really just not the world anymore. And, and I like that aspect of it. I see that as, as a, you know, a, a positive way of looking at things. So I, I like that. But I mean, on, on every level, this episode is just really enjoyable. Uh, my biggest gripe from a perception point of view is I think this has taken on the uh, the thought process, you know, among the community of being kind of the Deep Space Nine's version of the city on the edge of forever, where it's the one that all episodes are going to be compared to. And I'm going to come right out. I'm not going to try and be coy about it. I'm going, to, it's going to, I'm going to give it as high a rating as I do any episode. But I don't know if this is my absolute favorite episode. I think, you know, it's it's among my favorites. And I think it, you know, it, it's gotten the reputation of being the one that it stands out among others. I think there are some others that are just as good as this one. I think it, it stands out because it's, it is so off concept in the, the sense that, like you said, very little of it takes place on Deep Space Nine. So it stands out from all the other episodes. But unlike a lot of off-concept episodes from other shows, it stands out for being genuinely good as well. I don't know. It's not representative of the show. So you couldn't give it to somebody who's never watched Star Trek Deep Space Nine before and said this is the show at its high point, even though it clearly is, because it's not about Deep Space Nine or the characters or whatever's going on at the moment. But it is, it's one of those, it's just a really powerful piece of television. It's really well written. It's exceptionally acted. It's brilliantly directed by Avery Brooks. I think my, my two favorite characters in it were Armin Shimmerman's Harlan Ellison alike and Michael Dorn's baseball. Was he a baseball player or a football player? Baseball, baseball, baseball player. Baseball, baseball player who was, you know, 
everybody wanted him because he was good at what he did, but he wouldn't dare leave that neighborhood and live somewhere else because they wouldn't accept that. That was a that was an incredible nice piece of commentary on the situation. But they also handled it so well. He only has one line in the episode where he's bitter about it. But then the minute that he's trying to flirt with with Cassidy Yates is brilliant. Well, what are you doing till two? Well, whatever I'm doing, it won't be with you. All of that was genuinely funny stuff. But it never it doesn't it doesn't get mired in its message which i know seems really weird it's presenting the situation as it was and allowing us as an audience in the 20th and now the 21st century to look at it and go how how did we let this be like this and is it easier for me to look at that now and go well we just wouldn't tolerate this now because of the fight that they've had and the battles that they've won to get to the point where they are as respect, where people are respected as equals. Even though I don't agree with Paul at all, I don't think we've come far enough. Like, no, I'm not, I'm not saying we've gone, we've come far enough. And I don't have any problem with people who perceive and see racism where it exists nowadays. I'm saying we have come far from there though. This is not a day and age where you couldn't print a story because it was written by a black man. It, we, we've at least gotten far enough in our, society that you hear that and you think my god that's ridiculous yeah you know and it, the, it, at the um, time that yeah. was i think that is the reality though i think that's what life was like back then so we have come very far we well, we're not there yet we haven't arrived we haven't we're not at a point where where you know prejudice doesn't exist i don't know if we'll ever get there but we have moved forward and and even, even the stuff with Nana Visitor about, well, get the day off because God forbid we should have a woman's hand. All of that is general pulled for life. I mean, we've not just said that Armin Shimmerman was Harlan Ellison, but Nana Visitor was based on Catherine Moore, who had to go under the name C.L. Moore, but also Dorothy Fontana, who went by D.C. Fontana in Star Trek. Yes. And is I don't know. I don't know. There's the point that I'm making. Is, so well, I've seen people from my comfortable position. It's it's, it's quite uncomfortable in that way, treated that way, and we don't do any. Is, is Andy cutting in and out for anybody else? Yeah, yes. he is. Yeah. I've finished. I'm done. Yeah, yeah, I'm done. Well, David Pascarella requested to be on for this episode. David, what did you think? I love this episode. I love, first of all, the, fa- the fact of getting to see all the characters, as we've already stated, out of their costumes, like Quark, uh, even Nana Visitor, to see her full face. But I, I'm a very big fan of this time period in in history and i felt the accuracy of the way it was portrayed was really very good i'm figuring this took place about 1952 based on the uh, headline on the newsstand about i think it was the first h-bomb test which was in 52 mm-hmm. and uh i am usually not a fan of messaging issues but the way this was handled i love this issue because it dealt with a specific time period. It pointed out the flaws of the time period. And it's it's a consolidated one-shot issue. I have more of a problem with message issues where it's, today they do it a lot. Every single episode is going to beat me over the head with the same thing. This was handled great. It made it, you were sympathetic towards the characters. And uh, I really enjoyed it. But most of all, the historical accuracy of that. Because I'm kind of a bit of a history buff um the outfits were you know period appropriate uh Worf's character being a major league baseball player fits if it was 1952 it's only five years since jackie robinson became the first black baseball player for the brooklyn dodgers Worf's playing for the new york giants which would soon leave for california um 
the minor details of the shapes of the police badges are accurate to that time in the city of New York. The squad car that you see in the background, the model, the way the lighting is on the top, the colors, that's the way they were. Back before these plain white cars we have today, they were green and black because green, actually not blue, was the official colors of the New York City Police Department. Um, and just as a historic side note, by this time in the city of New York, New York City actually did have black police officers where a lot of places in the United States did it. So we were actually slightly above the curve. But uh, it was just a great overall episode. Every time Cisco's father appears on the show, I, I like him. But in the back of my head, I keep going, you know, you look just like Admiral Cartwright. <laughs> <laughs> Has anyone like, ever told you that? And you sound like Darth Vader. I know, but I thought I yeah. put on the radio. Yeah, if you squint, he sounds like Darth Vader. Yeah. So I love this episode. One of my favorites. So this is the first time I've seen this episode. And you're like, what? I am definitely saying that. No, I have not seen this episode. This is, but see, I was, I was going into this. I'm like, yeah, I've seen this. No, I haven't. I've seen the aftermath of this in a later episode in later season because I'm sitting here waiting going, all right, when are they going to have him in the mental hospital? Because I know that's where, that's where I've seen him before. So this, that is not what happens here. This is the, the build up to that, what we'll see in a later show. So this, I, this is a great, great episode. Um, I liked, uh, I mean, you know, yes, I busted on Jake's hair, but it was, I, I have a little more depth than that. What? No piffy comment from anyone? I'm surprised. You guys are lacking. Well, I'm going to give the credit on this one. You're, you know, I, this episode is ballsy. Not just for, mm -hmm. it's just very reminiscent of a Quantum Leap episode from season one that I can't remember the title of. And they found a way to, to work a Quantum Leap concept into the narrative of the show and make it matter to the ongoing show's uh, tapestry. And mm -hmm. the thing about it is, Deep Space Nine began in January of 2003. It was less than a year from the L.A. riots. You mean 1993? That's what I said. You said 2003. You said 1993. <laughs> um, less than a year from the 1992 Los Angeles riots. So racial tensions when the show started were very high, and I would say they are almost equally as high in our current culture. Have we had the Bell Riots yet? <laughs> not yet, or have we? But this Wait. is also not too, I mean, the concept, the time frame is not too far removed from where the mentality would be when the original series started. We all know the legendary story of uh, Martin Luther King talking to Nichelle Nichols and talking her out of quitting the show. And this just kind of takes the idea that Star Trek started with, that, that pushing that envelope and, and touching on these political things and says, we're not going to disguise this like let that be your last battlefield. We're not going to have Frank Gorshin look at the screen and, like, do you get it? We're just going to put this on the table and you consider the progress we've made and the, the lack of progress in some cases that we've made. This is just, this is, this is great television. There's nice little nods to Cole Meany basically being Isaac Asimov. Uh, there's also a nice nod to Buffy the Vampire Slayer. There's one yeah. of the letters that said, nobody would believe a cheerleader would fight a vampire, which Armin Shivram was a part of. <laughs> <laughs> I did not see that. Yeah. Well, Excellent. well, one of the other, um, now that you bring that up, I mean, this is <clears throat> other shows that have done something like this. The one that I only really comes to mind other than St. Elsewhere, uh, is Buffy in the episode where, and well, Dave, I'm sure you've seen it and, and, and yeah, the English guy, Andy, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry. So my stuttering kicks in sometimes, um, where Buffy 
she was she thought she was in in well of course we don't really know if she was in a insane asylum and she was dreaming the whole thing of her being the slayer i, I don't know of any other shows that actually did I do. So, so something like this smallville oh. did it I oh smallville yep another one new heart oh yeah oh yeah that's right the whole yeah <laughs> the whole thing was a dream and that was that was okay like that didn't bother what i just said about the uh you know, not wanting it to be too meta that way. It was fine in New Heart because, I don't know, because of it being a sitcom, I, I, I felt it had less gravitas and it didn't bother me as much to then turn around and say, oh, it's all a fantasy. Well, do you, do you mean as opposed to Bobby, Bobby Ewing being in the shower and the whole scene? Oh, I <laughs> and, and that's, too. that's one of the stupidest things uh. I can come up with, but, I never, I was never really a fan of that show, so it didn't impact me. And to be honest with you, I wasn't really a viewer. Not that I had any problem with the show, but I wasn't really a viewer of Saint Elsewhere either. Uh, but I don't know. To, like I said, to finish up a show and, and say the whole thing is a fantasy in somebody's mind, just I, I don't know. It takes away some of the the weight of it. Yes, yeah. I don't want to say it's a cheat, but it but it does lessen the impact. I mean, yes, like so we, like like we um, said earlier that yes, it is a fictional show, and so why should you care when the fictional show says it's fictional? But it does kind of like, well, then why did I waste my time? But then I'm wasting my time anyway. So you, you just you just go in a circle. Don't tell me that the storytellers don't care. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's that's basically, yeah. and I mean, in the way this one is presented, clearly Benny really cares. Um, By the it's way, real. The, that breakdown uh, they were talking about this in the documentary. Avery Brooks went all in on that when he went down to the floor you know the 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 shot was cut and he never he didn't come back up for a long time literally i mean so he went so deep into that that he he felt it mm. and i think it's it's one of the best directorial gigs by an actor on the show full start i mean i know it's jonathan frakes who's gone on to have the career as a director as well as a couple of other people like robert duncan mcneil and and um, belana therese roxanne big Dawson. but it's it's what dave was saying earlier on about the attention to detail of the 1950s setting, that was all Brooks. Brooks insisted on all of that, even though it was adding money to the cost of the show. And the producers supported him in it. And it's the reason he got the gig as the director. The directorial gigs are normally assigned almost at random. Like an actor doesn't choose which episode he's going to get when he puts his hat in the ring to be a director. Although they do try to make it episodes that that character isn't in a lot. And initially they had a lot of discussions about whether they felt Avery could pull this off, given how much he was in the show as well. And ultimately it was the discussion with him that led them to the conclusion they needed somebody who not only could talk from a position of authority to direct the show, but also act it from a position of authority. And that was him. So for the first time, they gave a substantial directorial gig to somebody who had a substantial acting part in the episode. He did. He did go total, uh, you know, hyperventilation in this one, but it was okay because I think the episode kind of called for it. So yeah, much I, so that I refuse to make fun of it. Yeah, yeah, it was I, I, actually, so well. I actually think it, it was one of his best breakdowns like this he's ever done because it was it was the breakdown of a man who has just been continually kept down by a situation beyond his control. And even what the what is really good about this episode, what I really appreciated, Rene Aubergeois's character is not the bad guy. He knows the situation is wrong, but he's just the guy who's like. You know, I've got a magazine to put out. I've got to answer to my shareholders. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. And when Benny is willing to compromise to tack 
that ending on about this is a dream of a future, oh, Bojan actually says, all right, yeah, I'll publish it then. That's good writing. He isn't a, a two-dimensional bad guy in this episode. Now, you could argue that the two cops possibly are, but I don't think the the bad guy of the show, they're systematic of a larger problem. They're not the bad guy in the episode. The bad guy is society. And I think I think the the two cops are, just, are, are more or less. Let's see if we can find a way to get Goldacott and Wayun in here. <laughs> I, I really felt like that was almost their purpose in here. Was was we need to have them in the episode? But you know what you say, Andy, kind of rings true. And what I like about it is he is continually beaten down and he keeps standing up and it, it's almost figuratively in the way he acts and then literally in the way it happens with the police he keeps standing up and continuing to to battle forward with what he wants and eventually the weight of it just goes so heavy on him that he breaks down and i i just think you know the whole story is so well put together this this is there's no question about it as i said this isn't necessarily the episode for me because there's probably about 5 episodes that that hit that total you know best episodes of ds9 for me but this is absolutely no question one of the most stellar episodes not only in the way it's written but the way it's directed the pacing of it everything about this episode is just really good <laughs> the only nitpick i can go with is the one that we've already talked about that jake just looks like a little boy in his father's clothes uh so they could have really almost done without his part in the story at all but they needed they need somebody to kill yeah. and I, so i think that's why he's here they couldn't kill michael dorn's character but wouldn't it wouldn't it have been like after, after we've seen michael dorn's character and it's it's kind of he's a very three-dimensional character to me in mm. his short presentation because while he comes off as a braggart and and all of that he also is likable yeah so you know there's something about him that that you know he's a decent person inside and he's just kind of like playing a role almost when he's in there like he has to come in like he's a big shot and not necessarily to kill him but if the police had just beaten him the way they beat Benny and then Benny went to protect him and he got beaten too. Wouldn't that have been just as effective? No. And maybe even more so because he was so likable? No, because they, w- they wouldn't have done it. He would have been too much of a public figure playing for the New York Giants. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It's easy to kill a to kill yeah, nobody. Well, I'm, I'm thinking in my mind the way I'm picturing it in my the story that I'm telling is they don't realize who he is. Mm. I, I don't think they couldn't. They they wouldn't not know who he was. He's a very prominent, or he's portrayed as being a very prominent player. And the fact that he's the only black player that they've got, I think they they couldn't not know who he is. But you kill okay. a black teenager, okay? I'm um, you know that's fine. You know what? This episode is a great lesson, and I'm going to preface what I say by saying the world today is far from perfect. My father's 86 years old, and he's reached this point in life where he's constantly saying how much better the world was back then. And you watch this, and the world may have been simpler back then, but if you were a black person, it certainly wasn't a better world back then. Oh, no question about it. If you were a woman, it certainly wasn't a better world. If maybe you had some more radical views, not a better world for you either. Just a good reminder for people of that. I I think, you know, a lot of people are guilty of turning their memories, you know, with nostalgia and thinking that things were always better. I think we are, for the most part, always moving forward, and therefore it is, things are getting better as we go along. Uh, there's things about it that probably are not as good. There's certain aspects of society where, you know, 
things have not not improved and actually gotten worse. Uh, you know, I'm going to try and go with one that's not very controversial and say, you know, kids addicted to uh, vaping and cell phones. You know, those are not good things. But you know, thirty years ago we had kids addicted to video games and smoking. You know, is is it any yeah. different? I don't know that it is. Um, I'm, I'm personally pleased we've come up with the polio vaccine myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think that is a a, a positive. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I think there's a lot of things that are a lot better, including the fact that our lives are easier now than they were. You know, physically, our lives are easier. People live longer because our lives are easier. Mm-hmm. I think people. Like you're saying, your dad, you know, says things were better. I don't think it's better in, and maybe not in nostalgia either. Because when I think back to things when I was, uh, you know, back in the day, I when think, I was a kid. Well, I think it's more of um, mentally, your it's it was easier because you hadn't felt the full impact of life and what it was going to bring and have children i think that's and i guess maybe that is a little of nostalgia that you're like you know i wish i could go back to a simpler time not simpler in like society but just simpler in your own life because you had no baggage i think that's why people say man life was easier when i was younger that's because you had no no responsibilities it's it's because you had parents who looked out for you every step of the way and and made your life easier for most of us i mean some people have very horrible childhoods and i don't want to i don't want to you know Uh, yeah not not count that but you know but we have had you know the, the four of us have all had you know good lives and and you know we're thankful for that <laughs> so it does i think you do have that you know when you're a child and you have people looking out for you and taking care of you uh life is simple because all your job you know your job is to go to school that's it <laughs> you know it's it's so easy and then you can come home and read comic books from a societal point of view though I mean, it, it was simpler in the fact that nobody talked about it there were there were people that did not have a voice benny robinson did not have a voice mm. in the way that it, that we have uh, town halls what I say? You said Robinson. Benny didn't <laughs> have Russell. A, Benny Russell didn't have a voice. Uh, now we have town halls like Twitter. We have Facebook, and, and there's ills that come with that. But there are situations that are now on the table that we don't often want to discuss them in some cases, but we have to, you know. And that's mm-hmm. that's the beginning of progress. Um, so I think it, it was simpler in the fact that society-wise, we didn't talk about somebody being, you know, different from us. We just pretended like they weren't there no see i i disagree a little bit because i think we were uh as a society had a tendency to look down on people who were different than us we were aware that they were there but then they were and, locked and, up and, and, and put away out of sight and and the culture at the time was to just kind of keep them down uh and to and to say you know those the places where those people are those are bad neighborhoods those are bad people stay away from there uh and and it's not because the people who were saying that were bad people per se it's because that's what they were raised to think and it was a very very strong misconception of society and i think we have to some extent gotten beyond that i think to some extent it does still exist as andy said i'm not saying that we that we've progressed to the point where it doesn't exist anymore i think it does still exist to some extent i think it's much more subtle now than it was and i think we've progressed a lot you know people who are different than us can advance in society oh my god what the heck was that okay people you know i'm trying to make a serious point that's what I hear. 
<laughs> anyway, but but you know, people in in society can advance now where they once couldn't. You know, I think there are still you know societal blocks on people, but you know, there's still a long way to go. I, I think I've yeah. totally veered well, off a point here. It's and better, think, but we're not perfect. Yeah. It's no. better, and I think seeing an episode like this should sit, tell us, look how far we've come, and look how far we still have to go. I think that's yeah. the way to look at it. I think generational changes will help with this, because um, not that I'm talking down to one of my relatives, I won't say who, but it was a discussion I had about, you know, uh, they were trying to sell a, uh, a vehicle, and the discussion came up that one of one of the neighbors. Well, uh, you know, well, I I might sell to this person, but this person's boyfriend, you know, her boyfriend's black. And I said, what do you care what color he is? If he's green, if he's if his money is green and it spends, who cares? Sell the damn truck. If he's green, you- I want to sell him the truck even more. <laughs> I was like, I sold the truck to a green guy. Now, now this person is in their seventies, and I'm thinking, I'm like, you know what? Maybe. And I don't mean to be more, but I'm like, maybe as your generation fades, maybe this will hopefully start to go away. Maybe that, well, that mindset, you know, because there was no reason for them to say that. Cause, but, but I know it's just generational. It's like, well, he's black. So what? Well, it's like, to be blunt, my, my grandmother, I'm not saying she was a racist, but she consistently throughout her life used the word colored. Mm-hmm. Even though that was not the word you used anymore. But it wasn't said in a militia. It's, that's the way it was at the time. And generationally, it's passed away now. Literally, mm-hmm. in that case. Yeah, I think you have to understand sometimes when you see things like this, what was the sentiment or the, the prevailing wisdom, for lack of a better word, of the time? And, you know, it, don't necessarily... I don't want to say I damn the people for taking on the cultural I think more standards more than more than wisdom. Yes. And 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 you know the thought process, like I said, it's it's what people kind of were taught, and it was wrong. And and eventually you had people who stood up and saw that it was wrong. You had people who were intelligent enough to take it beyond that and and brave enough to do that, and that's great. (laughs) But I don't think everybody, you know, I don't think everybody who kind of followed the the cultural mores of the time was the same as a Nazi stormtrooper who was, you know, marching people into, uh, you know, in, into the ovens. René Aubuchonois' character. Yeah. He didn't really have much of a choice. Did he? I don't think he did. He, he well, tried. He tried. He did publish. He did publish the story and the publisher pulped it. Mm. And, and at that point, so he, he, didn't really ability, he didn't really have an ability to say to the publisher, you know, you have to you have to publish this or I'm going to quit because the publisher would have said fine quit well yeah I mean there comes a point that in your life you have to balance and I'm not saying it's right but you have to balance you have to balance what's going on in you know how you feel about society and your obligations in your own life to your own family you know yes I can make a stand for this but then I'm going to lose my job I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying it's a conundrum that you're faced with. It's like, do do I stand up for what I believe is right and then I possibly destroy my family's future or affect it and I have to find another means of, you know, a another job, another career? It's not an easy decision to make. You know, I, I would bet in the real world, other than pulping the run, the message would have been, you send anything like that up here again and you're out. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. 
Yeah, yeah, I would agree. I, and I and at that point, he's got to be asking himself: If I take a stand here beyond what I've already done, is it going to serve any positive purpose for anybody other than for me to be able to say, "Oh, I didn't let this," you know, "I didn't just let this go." And I, I think the answer is probably no. It wouldn't have, because, like I said, the publisher would just fire him, find somebody else who who do what he says and probably wouldn't even make the effort that this publisher has to try because I think, you know, and, and I don't remember what the name of Rene Albanjois' character is in this, but I think from from what we saw of him, he's going to be willing to try again when the situation presents itself. And also, let's not forget, he is employing him and Nana Visitor's character. He's making them change the names and hide where they are, but he's paying them, and he's paying them well. Mm-hmm. Well, and it all it's almost like a chicken and an egg thing. It's like, okay, so if nobody ever takes a stand, how will things ever change? But you, you, you know, you have to take the stand, but then you may, you know, it's, again, it's not an easy topic, and it's not one we're going to solve in this show either. Yeah, and, I, and I hope we're articulating it correctly. Long time. I, you know, I'm, I'm just concerned that, you know, we're saying things with the best of intentions here and somebody's going to take it wrong. And I, I don't want that to happen. Well, it's a hell of a lot more talk than last episode. <laughs> well, that's because mm-hmm. there's much more deep meaning in this yes, one. Yes. Yeah, there's a, there's a deeper thread to this one. I mean, and taken away from everybody else's performance as well, we've not mentioned Cole Meany's brilliant performance as... Um, um, Isaac, Asimov. Um, Isaac Asimov. Isaac Asimov. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, Isaac Asimov. Uh, Terry Farrell is in it very little, but he's wonderful. Sure you go. Is her is accent, accent accurate? Because I it was the only accent I felt was a little bit Broadway. It's a little over the top. Right, okay. Ah, but but then, uh, you know what? I didn't live in the 1950s. I think that may have been more realistic for that era. Oh, come on. Really? <laughs> I, I think it was a little over the top. I think right. uh, my grandmother was a secretary, and they were they made you speak properly. They didn't want to have... Yeah, especially if she's, if she's answering the phones, unless she had a telephone voice. Anyway, so she was great in it. And Armin Shimmerman stole every scene he was in, apparently playing Alan Ellison. Yeah, he was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And uh, when when Rene Aubergine calls him a comic, and he's going to take his head off. (laughs) Oh, that was was absolutely fantastic. So every single performance in it was great. And even Jake, I get what you're saying, Paul, about Jake, but I think he's supposed to be... Or I read into it. He's supposed to be a boy pretending to be a man. That that makes it a little better thinking of it that way. Yeah, he's trying to be the the man around town, the tough guy, but he's really not. Mm-hmm. Did we point out that the uh, cover on the Galaxy magazine is a painting from the original Star Trek? No, that was, we didn't. That was yeah. used in multiple yeah. episodes, I think. Oh yeah, yeah it was one of the. It was like the. Huh. It was like the lithium cracking station or something, or like something one of the like Delta Vega or something. And there was one. There was a reference yeah. to Sam Cogley and uh, Court Martial. It was actually a story called Court Martial on the cover. And mm-hmm. Yeah, by Sam. Cogley. Yep, Tom T. Cogley. What do you think of uh, Alexander Siddig chewing on the pipe? <laughs> I, he was the only one for me that wasn't really a fully fleshed out character. I just felt he was slightly playing a parody. Apparently, he and Nana Visitor's character were married. But that, I don't think that's obvious in the show really? itself. Oh, didn't get that that's, at all. That's, and I just read, no, I just read that in the in the companion. But yeah, I didn't get that at all. But I, I felt like he was a caricature. A little, yeah, yeah. a little. I, yeah, I, I, he didn't take away from the episode because... Uh, 
he really didn't have that much impact on it, it really is what I felt like. And you say he wasn't fully fleshed out, I agree. Uh, you, you almost could totally eliminate his character from the episode and you wouldn't even notice it. Yeah, he's just, but he's just not important, is he? The show's not about him. He's, yeah. he's only the really because to give that actor something to do. Yeah, he's there so that he, yeah, so that he has a part in it. Also, the only one who we don't see in this is Ram, right? Yeah, yeah. of the reader, the semi-regulars. Lita, yeah. uh, Lita. I, I don't even think of Lita as you know. She's just there once in a blue moon. She's she's no no bigger a part of this series than Brunt, yeah. as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, and we do see Jeffrey Coombs, so yes. He gets in. Uh, and for a second, I had to look closely. For a second, I had to look closely to figure out if it was Jeffrey Coombs or Casey Biggs, because I think yeah, it would have well, been it would have been fitting to have those two together. Was, mm. The one that was unrecognizable was JG Hertz. Like, it was only when he spoke that yeah. Um Apparently, Casey Biggs was going to be in this episode. Was ironically stuck in New York. Oh right. Okay. Who would he have played? I do not know. Do you think it would have been him and Ducat as the policeman? That would have worked better. Well, not that it didn't work, but that would have been a more not more subtle nod to the show, mm. to you know their relationship. Well, because it seemed like Ducat was in charge of those two, so not yeah. Change. And having Jeffrey Coombs though gave that equal weighting. So suddenly right. Ducat wasn't in charge just because it was Jeffrey Coombs. Right, if you'd had Casey there, it would have been more of the show, you know. Have we it would have been, had a chance to talk about how the the Benny Russell story ties into the ongoing war plot that, that we start off the episode with? No, because I don't even remember. I mean, at the beginning of it, Cisco is kind of, he's just beaten down. He's, he's thinking of resigning. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And, and so it, it, it ends up tying into... I mean, these are the people, you know, Ducat and uh, Weyoun are the two people who are oppressing him, who he's fighting. They end up killing Jake, of all people. They uh, they beat him senseless, and he still gets up. And I love that idea that this is Cisco taking his beatings and getting up and realizing that the idea that he's fighting for in the fight itself is worth more than his personal costs. Mm-hmm. So it actually it ends up being a relevant entry into the ongoing war plot. I think, I, you know, what you say is a good point. I just don't, unfortunately, don't have much to comment on it just because, yes, I yeah. agree. Okay. I guess we should move into our ratings. Well, I'm, I'm just I'm just going to want to hit on just really oh, quickly sorry. that that I, I think that uh, it's kind of cool that, that Star Trek could do a social relevance episode that just comes right out and says it and still doesn't feel, like, heavy-handed. I think it feels more heavy-handed when they try and hide it. Mm-hmm. So for that reason, I think it's it's you know there's there's a positive to be taken from that. It's the Rosa Parks episode of Doctor Who, but done twenty years before. Mm-hmm. So I guess it is time to rate it now. Um. Oh, gee, this is going to take a while. I'm going to have to really think. Five. <laughs> <laughs> five. 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 What? It's the only question. Oh, I don't know if I wanted to. Uh, again, this is a, well. Let's see. Five, five copies of Galaxy Magazine. Yeah, they, yeah. They, there we go. I was going to say five pulp copies of Galaxy Magazine. Yeah, that works. Weirdly, I was was going to say that as well, and I changed my mind. Jeez, Bill, two minds with one single memory. <laughs> we are Max ma- ma- Max Max Headroom Headroom Max Headroom. <laughs> you, you know, you sound less less like Max Headroom and more like Billy Bibbit. I have no idea who that is. That is that is uh, 
it's it's a there is a connection here because we got Louise Fletcher. Uh, that's oh, the character. Oh, that's from One Flew Over Cuckoo's Nest. Yes. All oh, right. Yeah. yeah. I can't I can't remember the actor's name. We've seen Brad him a million Dorf. times. Brad Dorff. Brad Dorff. Yes. He had, yes. He had a, he had a very very bad stutter. And uh, not that I know anything about that. <clears throat> and that that was the way his character spoke when he got nervous when Louise Fletcher would confront him. And I mean, that was it was another masterful performance by her. In fact, it was probably, and this is saying a lot. It was probably superior to what she did on DS Nine, and she won Best Actress for it. So that says a lot. But that her character would intimidate him so much that he could barely get words out. And then there was a scene where he, uh, he his confidence was raised, and all of a sudden he stopped stuttering, and she just totally tore him down and then ultimately his character commits suicide very very powerful movie oh that's right that's what she says she says uh would you like me to tell your mother what you did you're like he that's right they got let him get with it they brought a girl into the yeah, asylum he sleeps with a girl and, and oh then she's like would you like me to tell your mother and he's like no 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 but before that when she's speaking to him he isn't stuttering at all right yeah i haven't seen that movie in a long time it's I was afraid that you were going to. I was afraid that you were going to come down in the middle of the night and smother me <laughs> and jump out of a window, big Indian chief. <laughs> Not that I wouldn't. <laughs> if if I ever get like that, Paul, feel free. I promise you, I'll smother you. Smother me with a pillow. I don't know. He's a little too enthusiastic, Bill. Yeah, <laughs> can't wait. I'll, I'll see him in July. Paul, was it a pillow? <laughs> I'm uh, not you know. dead. <laughs> You know it's going to happen. So, uh, that's that's what we think. What do you think Blaine has to say? Wait, wait, wait. May I make a suggestion, Bill? Shoot. To the tune of Dragnet, since we're in the 50s. Oh, I was going to do American Bandstand, but I thought I already did that. Okay. Blaine, 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 Blaine. Blaine, Blaine, what does Blaine Blaine say? What does he say? What does he say? Blaine says, hi, guys. Oh, this is a good one. When the season first aired, I was in the thick of my third year of university, so I missed a lot of season six and most of the first half of season seven that time around. I came into this expecting something comparable to Our Man Bashir or the goofier episodes of news radio. I was unprepared for the dream sequence to be sparked potentially by the prophets, nor for the fantastic social commentary that came out of it. This has possibly been the most pleasant surprise of the series to date. Not necessarily the best episode, but the best of those I didn't catch the first time around. Does it add to the much larger narrative? Aside from reminding us about the war in the beginning, no. That doesn't mean it isn't fantastic. Shimmerman gets a real chance to shine, possibly because he's the kind of guy in real life who will stand up and fight for what's right. I'm not surprised to see Mark Scott Zakri's name on the story credit. Zakri has done a lot to document the Twilight Zone over the years, both in a book and through a production through the production of bonus features on the DVD and Blu-ray releases. This is a concept that would be right at home in the Rod Serling series, too. His original concept differed in detail, time-traveling Jake Sisko, sort of, but the themes are definitely there. Brooks is very aware of himself as an actor. He has to be in order to direct himself this effectively, particularly in his monologues. I only wish the technology existed at the time to make the reflections look a little more natural. I can't complain about any other aspect of the episode. Damn near perfect. Yeah, that is true that they were originally going to do it with uh, Jake as the uh, 
character that was coming up with this, which I think they were better off going with Cisco. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it does, I mean, uh, the, the Armin Shimmerman character, as, as he mentions, is really, you know, the one who you can most look up to. And I think he had the best line in the episode, uh, because he makes the comment of, uh, you know, it loses all effectiveness if it's just a dream or something like that. Right. When, when they, the, the suggestion is to make the story, you know, a fantasy that way. So that's what Blaine says. Well, well said, Blaine. Well, well played, sir. So, uh, we got anything else or are we thinking about what's going to happen next time? Next time, our all new episode. It's not so much one tough little ship as just one little ship. In the blink of an eye, they are getting smaller. I don't feel any smaller. A dangerous experiment turns deadly. Something's wrong. The Jemadar coming around for another pass. In the heat of battle. Return fire, Mr. Warp. Surrender, or you will all be killed. A bitter enemy takes control. The Defiant is ours. In the face of death, victory needs a hero. Fire. On the next Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Tiny little ship. Teeny tiny little zippy, little zippy, teeny, 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 small. That's an extremely small joke, Ensign. See you all next time. I'm really Bye. glad that David Pascarella was able to join us. Yeah, thank <laughs> you, Dave. got him again. <laughs> thank you for letting me crash. Once I'm getting again. so used to recording with Dave that I forget that he's here, that he's a guest. I'm, I'm just going to keep showing up. up. Yeah. yeah, you can, whenever you want. Feel free. Thank you. Thank you very much. So, uh... Bye, everybody. Bye. 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 Take care. Listen to The Prophets at Deep Space Nine Podcast is a Two True Freaks presentation. It is hosted by Andrew Leyland and Paul Spataro. The music and sound clips used in the show are copyright CBS and Paramount Entertainment. If you like to buy stuff from Amazon, and who doesn't, why not drop by the twotruefreaks.com website, where if you click the little link that we have there, it will take you straight through that site, and whilst it won't cost you any extra, we'll put a few shekels in our tip jar, which helps create content like this. We very much hope you enjoyed listening to The Prophets. Every episode is dedicated to the memory of our pal, Sean Engel. Scott Gardner, a man barely alive. The hell was that? Was that a gong? It's like I'm on the gong no. show. No, I was just moving my cup out of the way. That's all. Cup that sounded like a 55 gallon drum. It runneth over. <laughs> we drink a lot of English coffee here. Oh, Pippi Cheerio. Back no up the truck and fill my cup, lady. In- what? <laughs> There's no such thing as English coffee. We get it imported. Wait a minute. I think I've heard the term English coffee. Remember that's English toffee. Toffee. <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs>